Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining Nerds Adulting. This episode, we sit down and talk with New York Times bestselling writer Kyle Higgins, whose work includes Batman, Gates of Gotham, Power Rangers, Nightwing, and Cowl. He discusses his influences, creative process, and much, much more. Here we go. Oh, wow. That actually does sound better, actually, whatever you did. Or maybe I'm just... <laughs> oh, well, it's a, it's a completely different microphone. This is okay. I'm on my desktop now. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, I mean, if you want to just do it like this, we can just... I don't have to record if it already sounds better. Um, we can just do it like this. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's fine. We can do that. It sounds okay. really good, actually. Cool. That mic, whatever mic you have now, sounds good. So, Got it. Um, <clears throat> okay, sweet. So I'm already recording, so we're just... I'm just going to kind of jump into it. Uh, uh, the plan was to kind of go over as to why I invited you on... <laughs> Uh, okay. To to go over, basically, I, you know, your beginnings growing up and how you were a nerd, and then how you got into the business, and basically dive into some of your work and your opinions and your thoughts, and then at the end, kind of close it out with uh, your two short films, the Shadow Hours and the League. If that sounds good to you, if there's anything else, yeah, whatever, talked about, yeah, whatever you want to do. Um, all right, great. So basically, I was telling Ruthie right before we called you was in July. You were here in Raleigh with uh, a group. You were on a panel of basically call it 80 Years of Batman. And mm-hmm. that panel was Neil Adams, Tim Seeley, Peter Tomasi. I hope I said his name right. <laughs> you and then Raphael Albuquerque. And right. immediately I was sort of drawn to you because I feel like we're about the same age. You mentioned Batman the Animated Series. And uh, I really was just fascinated with. with uh, how interested how batman the animated series influenced you um and correct me if i'm wrong that's what i was gathering from that right you the animated series seemed to be kind of touched uh um touched you in a certain way right like that was like sort of something that influenced you yeah um i i think that's really fair to say for sure i mean i grew up uh, how you said we're about the same age. I'm I'm about I'm going to turn 35 this year, assuming the world doesn't end first. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm 36 <laughs> now, so that yeah. <clears throat> yeah, well, you made it a year longer than I have. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, in that era, um, in the early 90s, you know, I I kind of joke around about this uh, at conventions and and just with other pros and everything, but there's definitely truth to it, like. You know, in my time, um, we didn't have, <laughs> it's weird to think about now, but we didn't have even half the material that exists today mm-hmm. as far as superhero stuff goes for like animation or live action. I mean, I remember <clears throat> before Batman the Animated Series, like, I don't think I was even allowed to see the Tim Burton. I, I don't think I had seen the Tim Burton film yet because I don't think I was I was allowed to. Mm-hmm. So I had, I had like Donner's... Uh, Dick Donner's first Superman, and then um, um, Richard. Uh, oh God, how am I blanking on his name? Um, the gentleman who did a Hard Day's Night. He took he took over Superman two um, when they fired Donner. Anyway, I had his uh, Superman two, and then I had like old Bill Bixby episodes of The Incredible Hulk, and like some random seventies Spider Man episodes that were like on Sci Fi Channel, <laughs> and and X Men the animated series, and that was kind of it. Um, plus like the sixties Batman TV show, which I liked for what it was, but even at, you know, seven or eight years old, I knew like, this isn't really the Batman that I, um, even at that age, I knew this isn't the Batman that like is really cool. Um, cause I was aware of the Burton film. Um, and my uncle that he lived with us at the time and, and he's like 15 years older than me. So he had it on VHS. So I would always kind of like sneak into his room when he was watching it and he'd let me like watch a few minutes of it things like that so and plus plus some comic books that were kind of around <clears throat> so i remember um coming home from school one day and going to turn on like a rerun of the the 66 batman show i think it was on fx actually um and i went to turn it on and there was like a notice that said it wasn't going to be airing but the new batman show the batman the animated series would be on fox and so I turned it over to Fox, and I don't remember what episode it was. I don't think it was on Leather Wings, but it might have been. Um, and that was kind of my gateway. Um, and the, the cool thing about that show, I mean, not only did I appreciate it at the time, although I did feel like 
as I learned more about Batman, I felt like, oh, well, this is kind of like, you know, the popular Batman now. Like, the action figures were all catered to it. Whereas I was like, really wanted to try to find action figures from uh, from the Michael Keaton films. Because Batman Returns had been out at that point as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, I found the Robin figure and things like that. So, it was like, oh, man, I guess everything's going to, towards this animated series stuff. In hindsight, I look back and it's like, well... Yeah, I mean, it was that good. And it influenced me so much to the point where, actually, when I was writing Nightwing, I remember um, having a call with, with uh, Devin Grayson, and, and we were just kind of talking about the character. And I think she was doing, like, um, an inventory issue, so she was calling to see what, like, kind of what the lay of the land was and everything like that. And I was having a lot of trouble on the book at the time. It was, like, a really, it was a really challenging time um, to write at DC. And... At the time, I didn't know anything other than that era. But now, like almost 10 years later, it's like, oh, yeah, man, it was crazy. Um, (laughs) Some of the hoops we jumped through and and whatnot as creators. And uh, she kept telling me, like, you know, when in doubt, she's like, I used to just go back to the animated series because that it always seemed like those characters, those interpretation, the the interpretation of of the character, no matter kind Mm -hmm. of what character you're talking about always seemed to be kind of like the most pure, like best iteration of that character. Um, They found it for the animated series. And I had kind of done that instinctually already, but to hear her kind of really articulate it was like, oh yeah, you're you're totally right. I mean, there's a reason why the show not only is so beloved kind of within fandom um, and in pop culture, um, but for me personally, you know, I mean, so much of what I think of when I think of Batman really boils down to um, the animated series interpretation. I'm also like a big architecture kind of nut. Well, I shouldn't say nut, but like I, I live, I'll put it this way. I live in like a 1930s, like art deco apartment. Okay. Like, <laughs> so, so the, the, um, so the, the, the dark deco of the animated series just aesthetically is mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not really an era that ever existed. Um, but I, I, not in that way, but um, I'm so drawn to it. I just think there's like such a romanticism about it. And especially when you think about, in my opinion, there are two ways to do Batman in, in like a live action um, version. It's either you make the world as crazy as him, which is what you see in the Burton films um, with the very operatic kind of stylings of the, mm-hmm. of the city and the architecture and everything. So that suit just kind of fits in. You don't and the, and the car and everything. You're just like, oh yeah, it totally fits within the the aesthetic of that world. Or you make him as grounded as the world, which is where you get the Nolan versions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking about the animated series, like there's a nice kind of hybrid there, um, and there's some suspension of disbelief because you're dealing in animation. But um, Tommy guns and and um, you know, really like vintage kind of like forties era and fifties era cars, um, the, the, the art deco, all the gargoyles, like it all just kind of the blimps, it all just kind of works, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say it's making the world as crazy as him, but I wouldn't say it's grounding him in the world either. It's kind of this really nice hybrid. Yeah. It's funny you, you brought that up. Cause I was thinking the same thing. Cause I've been watching that recently, uh, with my, my daughter, she's really digging the animated stuff. She likes teen Titans go. So, you know, we watch that together and stuff, but uh, you brought up the, the, like the era, like the, you look at the cars and like, like you said, the buildings, it's almost like this 1940s, 50 ish feel, but also modern day, yeah. which was an interesting take. I, I kind of, I would love to pick the brains of the creators and, find out how they went that way but um yeah like you i came home every day i turned from school i turned it on and i'd watch it i watched it like every day after school and i did see the uh the burton films on vhs and i loved them it was something you know just hadn't been done before as far as superheroes i didn't really like superman i thought it was kind of cheesy and same thing with the batman stuff so um that kind of was like my gateway as well with superheroes. It was more mature, I guess. I think you know the other one, <clears throat> the other one that people don't talk about that often, but I I have a distinct memory of is uh, is Super Friends as well, mm-hmm. and those episodes from like the seventies and eighties, those would air on Cartoon Network mm. before before Batman the Animated Series came out. I, I think 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, there was, there was that stuff as well, but all of that stuff was a little kind of goofy, you know? Yeah. All right. I kind of want to pivot towards more of the beginnings of your career. I just wanted to know basically how did it start? Like, how did you get into writing for, for comics? Just how did you get into writing? Like, how did that start for you? Um, well, I, you know, I, I say now that I, I guess, I guess I always, I've always written. I just wasn't really aware of it for a long time. Um, I, I've been kind of making movies since I was seven years old and my dad is a photographer. Um, and he had this, uh, this this high eight uh video camera that he used to you know film i guess kind of like my early mine and my sister's kind of like early childhood years but then also like christmas mornings and things like that and one day it just kind of occurred to me it's like oh we we have a camera like you know like i could make a movie you know like (laughs) i could i could be superman and so we did that and my sister and i you know we made costumes and and we shot these little films and and then something for the Ninja Turtles and then a bigger thing for Power Rangers. And so I did that for a couple of years and I was always like really into making costumes and things like that. Um, superhero related. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure until like the age of 12, I was convinced I was going to somehow become a superhero one day. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized like I could get shot, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh you know, once I was in high school, there was a project my freshman year in, in an English class that we had to basically build out kind of like a, a marketing uh, tool. I shouldn't say tool. It's almost like a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did it for uh, my group and I did it for a pair of sunglasses. And this was at the same time that the first X-Men film was in production and so I was following the progress of that online quite, um, like, very, like, intently. And um, I actually cite that movie and, and, and the kind of spoilers that you would find on the Internet on sites like Ain't It Cool and, and Superhero Hype and Corona and Dark Horizons. Those kind of became my film school because I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in Illinois. So, like, not anywhere close to production, although... Uh, Road to Perdition shot very close to my house, which I I, I had heard rumors of like in two thousand and like one two thousand two. Um, Can I so ask it's you real quick? You mm-hmm. said you grew up what? Because I'm I grew up right outside of Chicago too in the South suburbs. Can I ask you what town or what area oh, you grew yeah. up in? Well, I grew up in Homer Glen, which is in between Lockport to the west and okay. Orland Park to the right. So like right right in that like Orland Park, Tinley Park, Lockport, yeah. Joliet, like right kind of in that. Plainfields there, New Lenox, yeah. I grew up east of you. I grew up in Park Forest, Chicago Heights. Uh, oh, I know Chicago Heights, yeah. Yeah, that's where I where I grew up. I went to Rich East High School, which they're actually closing down, by the way, if you haven't heard. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. No, I hadn't uh, heard. But I'm sorry, I sidetracked, but I thought I, I forgot oh, to throw that out there. I, I didn't realize you grew up so so close to me. I, I remember we did a cross-country sectional meet at Lockport High School. I remember that, so... Um, but yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure we played you guys uh, in basketball. Oh yeah, but um, yeah, um, yeah. So um, we so during this freshman year, like, and putting together this this kind of marketing. Um, I don't even remember what the project was specifically, but um, or what like the the direction on the project was. But I know that we, my little my group and I came up with this idea of like why don't we put together a commercial for sunglasses but there'll be sunglasses that are the ones like used by cyclops in (laughs) in the x-men kind of universe and Mm. i was taking like a video editing class um as well but it was like it was deck to deck it was vhs to vhs you know um so it was a linear editing system that was my first time i really saw what you can do, um, even in that very limited kind of capacity. So I, we started shooting, um, I started shooting little like footage for this and then like beauty shots of these sunglasses. And then, um, we used, I think, I think I also used, uh, the sunglasses, the Oakley's from, uh, Mission Impossible 2 
that was there were trailers out for that at the time as well. Which the irony is, we you know, Dog Ray Scott was supposed to play Wolverine yeah. until he got until he got injured on Mission Impossible Two, and then Hugh Jackman was brought in. And it was like his first movie. Did you see that just um, came out that he said Tom Cruise said he couldn't do it? Did you see that heading? I saw no. it online. Something came out that basically Tom Cruise, he's saying that Tom Cruise told him he couldn't do it because he had to finish Mission Impossible or something like that. It was some weird thing that came out recently. Holy cow. Yeah. I yeah. mean, talk about the difference <laughs> in career tra- trajectory. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I um, started pulling, like, I actually even videotaped the computer screen uh, of the trailer. Um, for like X-Men and for um, Mission Impossible. I was trying to figure out how to get the trailers off the internet onto like my mini DV camera so I could actually cut them into like footage from them into the commercial. But like this was 1999, 2000. So the idea of like, get like that's, you could do it today and transcode and everything, but like you couldn't do it then at all. Like hard drives were like eight gigabytes, you know? (laughs) So I just had this idea. I was like, oh, I could just videotape the computer screen. And so... That project coupled with, um, and we were basically saying in the project that like these are the sunglasses that Cyclops wears and Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible or Ethan Hunt wears and you know things like that. So that project and putting it all together, plus following the production like behind the scenes as best I could of of the first X Men movie and then seeing what is one of my two favorite movies, Memento, is what really turned the corner for me where I went okay, this is actually, this is what I want to do, like, for sure, for with my life. And so I started putting together, like, some short films, like a short film, but I never thought I could write, but I had to put something together to shoot, so I did, and never finished the film. But um, I also put together, but I did write a script for it, and then I also put together this cool project that was for our high school football team because we won the state championship that year. So I put together this huge, like, almost like documentary DVD box set. I did all the artwork for it and had it mass produced and, and negotiated the rights with like the IHSA so I could become an official vendor so we could sell the game on DVD wow. kind of around the Chicagoland area. And that kind of all just led me to going to the University of Iowa um, where I thought, okay, this will be great. Like I can double major in film and comparative literature because there was no film program. Cinema and comparative literature, I think, was the degree. But also um, computer science because I'm from the Midwest and your parents are like, well, you better have a backup plan. <laughs> so, and I got there, and in the first week or two, I was like, ah, yeah, this isn't the this isn't the school for me. Like, this isn't going to be right for me. Mm. But I was going to be there for two years because I wasn't going to be able to transfer. But I became obsessed with getting out to Southern California to like Los Angeles area for film school. And but knowing I was going to be in Iowa for a while, I was like, well, what can I do while I'm here to take advantage of like and to prepare me? And I had this class, this like introduction to rhetoric class as a freshman that all freshmen had to take. And the guy who taught it actually was from Los Angeles. And I was like, how did you end up at the University of Iowa? And he's like, well, I'm a master's student. I'm in the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I didn't know what that was, but I really liked the guy. And so I started taking like some creative writing classes at Mm -hmm. Iowa, not knowing that the University of Iowa is the top writing program in the country. And I wasn't in the, the, the writer's workshop but because that's a grad program. But I was an undergrad taking writing classes with all of the people that were in it. You know what I mean? Like they were teaching. They were TAs. Essentially, mm-hmm. they were teaching it. And so that was the big experience that like I wrote a few prose pieces. And I don't, I don't write prose, but I you know, had to for this class. And I got really into it. And I retroactively realized like, oh, I've written my whole life. So I would have material to go direct and when i went to film school eventually in at chapman and i had to write a story to get into the program i wrote i had this like wild idea about a superhero labor union and i wrote it as like a comedy piece and then when i got into the program and i saw the scope of certain thesis projects thesis films i kind of clocked that mentally and went "Mm, well when it's time for me to make one i'm gonna go big because that's the best way to have a calling card and I want to do something that if it doesn't work out, I like I'll be I'll be happy that I took the shot. And I thought I want to go back to the material that got me into films in the first place, which was superhero movies. Mm. And so I want to do my own. And um, and let's see what happens. 
And at the same time, I'm going, well, the other people I could get to write this, I feel like I can write it just as well. So I might as well just do it myself. So it was never intentional that I would start writing. Um, it's just something I guess I always kind of did just out of necessity. And then Joe Casada, who's the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, saw my film online and reached out to me. And I ended up pitching to Marvel for like a year and then landed an issue of Captain America. And at that point, again, not thinking of myself as a writer, but also looking at something that I think is a potentially tremendous opportunity. And so it really just kind of came out of it's it's I hate to say it, but it's kind of something I fell into. Mm-hmm. And now, 10 years later, what's really cool is that while I actually resented my comics career for a long time because I felt like it was at the expense of what I really wanted to be doing, was, which was directing, all of a sudden I realized, oh, this thing that I only ever did out of necessity has now become kind of my greatest strength as a storyteller. And that's really cool. Like, I've written a lot of comic books and you do some, you do something long enough and over and over again, like, Unless you're completely inept, you are going to get better at it, you know? Yeah, you've written a few comics <laughs> going over here. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my super long-winded uh, answer to your question. No, that's awesome, though. Thank <laughs> oh, I, started, you. Right? I, I love origin stories, so that's thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, you might be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love stories, too. I don't yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're always constantly trying to get through the origin faster so that we can get into like um, the more compelling kind of modern day drama yeah. in, in, in films and in movies and comics, you know, et cetera. Yeah. I'd say as long as it's not uh, an overdone uh, origin story, I'm always down for a good origin story, <laughs> a la Batman's parents dying. Like, I don't need to see that again. So, <laughs> right, um, right, right. Uh-huh. Oh man. Um, so yeah, we kind of, we went into like how you kind of got started and stuff. Um, you've kind of hit on that you made, uh, the Power Rangers kind of like you did little home videos and stuff. So, I mean, I know it kind of came later, but you did the Power Rangers comic. Um, like how did that, like to me, like it, I guess for me, it just kind of came out of nowhere. I was like, what, they're doing a Power Rangers comic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> while I was writing Nightwing, um, who is my all-time favorite character since I was like, you know, nine or ten years old and mm-hmm. realizing that he even existed, um, I, I, you know, they, it's, it's crazy to think about now. DC gave me the keys to his book when I was like 25. And the only other Nightwing number one that had been around was the Chuck Dixon, Scott McDaniel one, which I have a frame, like I have a poster signed by Chuck and Scott framed behind me in my little office right now. Mm-hmm. So to, to take over and, and write the, you know, the number, the new number one is really, really, really cool. Um, the experience wasn't great. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I've talked a little bit about it before, but, um, I learned a lot. I'll put it that way, but it wasn't um, it wasn't a great experience. And I, but I wrote the book mm-hmm. for like three years, like thirty issues. Mm-hmm. And during that time, one of my friends, uh, Bryce Carlson, who I'd gone to college with at, at Chapman, but we didn't know each other until after we both graduated. He was an editor at Boom Studios, kind of rising through the ranks. And he and I w- were joking around on on G Chat one day about like you know what boom should do they should get the license to power rangers because like it just kind of hit me i was like man like you could make a really really sick power rangers comic book series mm-hmm. like because you wouldn't be limited by, by pre-existing footage you could turn it into like a contemporary more complex superhero series more in line with like the teen titans or even x-men and yeah. he was like, oh, he's like, dude, you know, we've actually been talking about it. And, and we just kind of like riffed back and forth for a few minutes. And then like, I kind of forgot about it. And like six months later, Paper Cuts announced that they had the Power Rangers license. So I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind. Like, oh, well, oh, well, it didn't work <laughs> out. If they were, if, I don't know if they were really that serious about it, but it didn't work out. Fast forward, like, I don't know, four years. And I was walking through my neighborhood um, we were just about to announce Hadrian's Wall. Mm-hmm. Maybe we already had announced it. I can't quite remember. And I was about to go start shooting 
that my shadow hours short film and I'm walking through my neighborhood and I'm scrolling through like Twitter and I see this comic book resources article, CBR article, like boom studios has acquired the license to mighty Morphin power rangers. And with the press release, they had the helmet covers from issue zero that Goni Montes drew and they were stunning. And I was like, yeah, I saw that. I saw those covers and I've told Goni this. I was like, I saw those covers and I, and I immediately went, I have to figure out a way to be involved with this book because they get it. I, I know Boom will put a ton of marketing resources behind this. This could be a big book for them. This could give them some market share. And look at the look at these covers. Like they look like new, like sleek, like slick cars, you know, like mm-hmm. suits and everything. Shiny and tight and glossy. And it was like, yeah, we could we could do something super, super sick with this. And so I emailed Price immediately and I was like, hey man, I was like, who do I got to kill to write a pitch for like a Power Rangers backup? Hopefully not you, because you're the only one I know. And, <laughs> and he, he wrote back and he's like, you know, actually, we're still looking for a main series writer. And your name, you know, has come up because um, you and I talked about this like years ago. I was like, yeah. And he goes, would you want to work up a pitch? And I and I said, OK, I said, you know what? I've got like a have got like two weeks before I have to go shoot shadow hours. So I have like a little one week window. Let me put something together. And so I did. And then, like, there were a bunch of notes on it. I did them. There were more notes. I did them again. And I told the editor this time, I was like, look, is this my gig or not? Because I'm not going to keep doing rounds of revisions on an out, on a pitch. And she's like, if Saban says yes to this, it's your book. Okay. So then Saban said yes. And then we were we were off and running. Nice. Yeah. Um, I recently read volume one. And I got to say, those pictures that you were talking about were just I was just sharing them to to Ruthie right now. I don't know if she's seen them or not, but man, those were some badass pictures. I was like, I mean, so the artwork actually in the comic book is amazing too, from what I could read. But I love how it's like this original take in modern day, but it also takes sort of kind of like the storyline is how you know I guess begin from what I'm reading is beginning with Tommy convert it basically converts well, to be a good guy from that's where that where yeah. I'm at. Sort of. I mean, the show actually this <laughs> this speaks to what we were just kind of joking around about. Like, I did not want to do new origins, like, uh-huh. and and coupled and coupling that back even further, my experience on Nightwing taught me so much about how to navigate not only um, working with editorial, but working with in this case licensors, which were the 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 people at Saban. Mm-hmm. And that kind of paralleled some of the higher up dynamics at DC that you had to navigate as well outside of your relationship with editorial. So my experience at DC had really, really kind of prepared me and and taught me for this and how, how to do this, how to do this book. And part of why I'm so proud of what I did on the book is because whereas my experience on Nightwing was like, I had a ton of plans and a ton of long form plans and like really cool things I wanted to do. And then kind of every arc, they would get killed. Um, and then it was a scramble just to make the, the rest of the arc coherent. Um, on Power Rangers, pretty much everything I wanted to do, we, we did. And so to see it actually come to fruition and come out and to, to work and to resonate for people was really, really special for me. But I also wouldn't have been able to do it and accomplish it had I not had the experience at DC. And mm-hmm. so part of all that then is I knew I did not want to do new origin stories. I just looked at that and I was like, that is mm-hmm. oof, that is a rabbit hole. Yeah. And that is just in that is just inviting like getting note fucked is <laughs> is is a term I use a lot. Um, where it's like, oh, they're note fucking us here. I mean it's like notes after notes after notes and it's like uh. at a certain point the the you know the snake is eating its tail and you're getting notes that contradict previous notes and things like that and it's like oh boy like this pro- this 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 thing has cancer now you know yeah and so it's like new origins just feel like with a licensor who's never really done comics before not really understanding what the timeline is like to do a comic and what the approvals how fast the approvals really need to happen and also the fact that the creatives don't get paid for all of the revisions I was like, man, I do not want to like wade into like that kind of murky water that would be redefining origins. So instead, and also like 
most people that are going to buy this book, I feel like I can accomplish what they need to know, you know, pretty succinctly and efficiently here. Um, without them being normal kids who are chosen to be Power Rangers. So then it was like, well, how the hell do I, what is my way into this book then? And I was flipping through episodes of the show and kind of like, I hadn't seen it since I was like eight years old and flipping through episodes of the show and watched the whole Green with Evil series. And and I'd always really liked Tommy and I liked dark mirror inversion characters kind of in general, antagonists anyway. And, um, and I, I, you know, we finished the series. He's, they break the spell. He's no longer brainwashed. And then the very next episode, he's like a full fledged member of the team. And I, <laughs> I looked at that and I was like, oh, that's it right there. That, that's how we do it. And I could see like the first three arcs in my head of how you basically bring him in and he's still seeing images of Rita and you don't know if it's actually her or if it's just like PTSD or what it is. And then you bring in an outside threat who's using this opportunity and Rita losing him to manipulate Rita and then manipulate Tommy. And, and at its core, it's about this kid trying to fit in with these people and joining a team. And if Power Rangers has always been about the strength of friendship and teamwork, this is looking at that dynamic through the lens of a new member joining that team, how that mm-hmm. team would feel about him joining and how he would feel potentially insecure about joining them because of what he has done and feeling like maybe he's not worthy of it. And, and you know... And that then built to what I wanted to do, which was at the end of the first year, so arc three, in order for him to fully kind of feel secure and get over that, those kind of like self-worth uh, insecurities, I wanted him to go up against kind of like a dark mirror version, like his greatest fear. And so the greatest fear became this alternate future timeline where he had chosen to stay evil. Mm-hmm. And that version of him then became Lord Draken. Um, which the Lord Draken character then became the antagonist for the big event that I did in year three, Shattered Grid. Um, and so it all kind of built organically in that way. Yeah, so I was just going to say is you, when I, because I started reading volume one, you just kind of, this world was already built. There was no explanation of how this happened. And then you just kind of did callbacks sort of, you know, through dialogue or through little little scenes here and there. And I thought it was really interesting as a fan of Power Rangers. I thought that was a very interesting and a, a nice way to start off that, uh, that franchise or that comic. And I thought it was really yeah, interesting. I, just, I, I feel like unless you have free reign, like, uh, Bendis and Bill Jameis did with ultimate Spider-Man, unless you have free reign to completely reinvent, um, a character's origin, um, I, you're you're only ever going to just be kind of a copy of what came before, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I just reread a bunch of Ultimate Spider-Man, and I really, really love that first arc. It is very decompressed, though. I mean, he doesn't become Spider-Man for, like... But I don't think Ult- Uncle Ben dies until issue five or six, whereas that entire kind of narrative happened in 12 pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but they had kind of carte blanche to kind of update and reinvent Spider-Man for the new kind of, um, the new millennium on Power Rangers. Like we weren't going to have that. We weren't going to, we were not going to be, uh, granted that, that level of kind of freedom, you know? So it was like, and I kind of knew that up front or suspected it or just didn't even want to take that chance. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, well, let's rather than try to reinvent something because we also we also didn't know at that time any of us what the market would be for the book like you think there's crossover between power rangers fans and comic book fans but how much you know mm-hmm. we weren't sure and we felt like we had to we had to teach some power rangers fans how to read comics and we had to teach some power some comics fans what power rangers were Mm-hmm. And and finding a way to kind of navigate that, um, I, I, you know, I'm not on the book anymore and I haven't been in almost two years now, mm-hmm. but I will say, it, you know, it's a little bittersweet. Like my best friend writes it now, Ryan Parrott, and I'm really proud of him and happy for him. It's a little bittersweet, you know, because it's like all this stuff that I kind of built out, you know, goes forward without me. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's the nature of 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 serialized storytelling, though. 
Um, yeah. But what is what what is really cool is knowing like, hey, none of this would have none of this would still be going if the foundation that I laid hadn't been solid. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You have to you have to like just appreciate you know like your part in the phase like the process. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I could totally attest to the whole, you can't assume, like, I could see that shaky ground. Like, you can't assume that comic fans know anything about Power Rangers, and you can't assume that Power Ranger fans know how to read a comic book or, you know, to get that crossover uh, yeah, medium. Say, I shouldn't even say know how to read a comic. I guess what I mean Appreciate is... Appreciate the medium, maybe, or, like, or, as much. Or care about, or, yeah, or care yeah. about comics. Like, we didn't yeah, know, exactly. You know? Yeah, I got you. <laughs> we're, we're not saying anyone's like, dumb. <laughs> this just in. <laughs> Kyle says Power Rangers fans don't know how to read comics, you know. <laughs> oh, God. <clears throat> oh, man. Um, so, yeah, no, I just, uh, the Power Rangers, I grew up, it's like super nostalgic. Um, and, you know, the Mighty Morphin, I still, it's like one of those movies now, I guess, because we're adults, we have to say, oh, it's one of those movies, it's so bad, it's good, you have to watch it for nostalgia. But I still like it a lot. <laughs> oh, the um, movie, the, the 1995 movie? Yeah, yeah, like it's, that and then the series and stuff. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's not a good movie. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I, yeah, so I watched it and like the editing, like I was looking at editing and stuff and when you can see like definitely green sheets and stuff, like the lines. Yeah. I was yeah. like, oh, no. <laughs> but it was fun. So, I mean, it's yeah. just like those things where yeah. you're like, oh, I remember watching it when I was a kid. You know, everybody, and when you're with your buddies, everybody picked what ranger they were, I guess, you know, if you were playing around. Yeah. So, yeah. For sure. So, um, I wanted to actually ask you because I'm a, I, I told Pete that I was like kind of intimidated talking to you because my favorite Why? superhero, well, my favorite superhero is Batman. And mm-hmm. you've just like delved with him so much and stuff. So I really wanted to ask you, um, I know you're huge on Dick Grayson and everything. Um, mm-hmm. But in general, I just want to ask, like, what is it about Batman, either like his like his hero, his persona, Dick Grayson or otherwise? Like, why? what drew you, what draws you to him? Like, why is he so interesting to you or possibly your favorite? Um, I, I think that, uh, there's a couple reasons. Um the first is that DC characters, um, well, comics char- characters in general are so rarely allowed to change. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Dick Grayson was Robin for, you know, like 50 years, yeah, you know, forever. 40, 40 years. <laughs> yeah, 40, um, yeah, yeah, I'd say that's 45. Yeah, because I think mm-hmm. he became Nightwing in 1985. Yeah. So, um, the idea that Dick Grayson was Robin for like 45 years and then quit created a new identity and that identity has stuck now for 35 years. Well, I guess he's not really Nightwing at the moment. I don't know what DC's doing with him, um, to be honest, <laughs> but, um, I don't really follow. It's kind of like trying to stay friends with an ex-girlfriend, you know, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. you just kind of like, yeah, we were good together once and, <laughs> you know, I- I hope I still get some, you know, uh, some a, a call once in a while, i.e., a royalty check. But other than that, um, yeah, no, I'm good. Uh, yeah. Remember me well uh, or fondly, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, like the idea that he created a new identity for himself, it's stuck, is really really cool. Um, and it, it's weird. Like I've always liked secondary characters, and you would think I was like the youngest child or something, but I'm not, I'm the oldest, but for whatever reason, I just really liked the secondary characters that were always trying to get out from under someone's shadow, whether, Mm -hmm. um, explicitly or, um, or, or more nuanced than that. Um, and so there was that for me for starters, but then the other thing is that people like to describe them as like, kind of like Batman without the baggage, you know? Or like a cross between Batman and Spider-Man. And I, I think what that ultimately is getting to is like this point that I kind of found while I was writing him, which is that if Batman does what he does to mourn his parents' death, Dick Grayson does what he does to celebrate his parents' lives. And everything about him 
is coming from a place of optimism, you know? Like, he's a guy that'll, like, save you from a mugger, tie your shoe, and buy you a beer, you know? Yeah. And there's something about that that I really respond to. Um, and also, th- this is going to, like, sound probably a little weird, but um, I'm the, the color is huge to me. The black and that kind of, like, robin's egg blue, that cyan blue, blue yeah. is so striking to me. It's actually my favorite color combination just in general. Um, yeah. I was I like actually became a fan of the Carolina Panthers in like 1995 specifically <laughs> specifically because of the colors. The color, yeah. Um, and and it's a weird thing. I used to like like DC changed Nightwing to red and black, kind of just to do something different for the New 52 before I got on the book. And so it was like locked in place. There was like one moment at the start where it could have gone blue and black, and I was like, yes, please, please, but they didn't. And then I basically spent three years trying to, like, get him back in the black and blue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it almost happened once. And then again, or again, it almost happened again one one time right around issue 19. But it got it ended up getting killed in the 11th hour. And uh, they put him back in the black and blue only after they fired me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but the thing was, like, they were like, why do you care so much about this? And And on the one hand, it's because, well... I love that color combination and that's mm-hmm. Nightwing to me, right? Yeah. But that speaks to the other reason, which is that in comics, visual identity is so incredibly important yeah. to me anyway. Like for, for starters, the characters that end up breaking out are the ones, I, I say 90% of it is the design. Like mm-hmm. think, the, think about the characters that have really popped in kind of popular fiction in comics in the last 30 years. Um, Venom. Right. Like mm-hmm. there, there's yeah. there's a really striking design that kind of transcends um, the book and yeah. uh, the, uh, the Court of Owl, Owls characters uh, more recently um, in Snyder and Capullo's run. Like, again, a really striking design. And to me, that black and blue that Brian Stelfreeze created is so it's perfect. Like, don't mess with it. It's perfect. And in a medium when you don't have actor performances or actor likeness to create a connection between past iterations of a character. Um, the thing, because every artist will draw a character differently. Oh, yeah. That's just how it works. The costume, and in particular, the color, is the thing that carries over from one artist's interpretation to the next. In a character that is supposed to where all those interpretations are supposed to have happened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so to me, there, there is something to it. Um, but, you know, what, whatever. It was the new 52. <laughs> um, I, I wrote the Heroes Reborn of Nightwing. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's all of those factors. Um, and then just, yeah, the animated series for me as well, like that interpretation, I, I really, it's a little darker, uh, a little edgier, but I just, yeah. I just really, really liked it. And he was always a character that I just, I, I just felt like he just never really got his due. That Dixon McDaniel series to this day is like, I could, I could quote every single issue. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like my favorite run of comics. Um, so I don't know, just we, we, there's, we find a character we like and then we kind of, um, we latch on for better and for worse. Yeah, no, I'm actually surprised about what you said about Dick Grayson because how you said he kind of pulls it from like a place of optimism and stuff. Um, because like for me, I've noticed like a lot of his, um, a lot of his lines and stuff are like his asides that are internal, like his internal monologues. Mm -hmm. They're very like almost like self depreciating, like, you know, like, yeah, self, def- yeah, self, yeah, like, he, he feels like he'll never live up. And, like, I guess with what you said, it made me, like, maybe it's because he pulls from somewhere different from Batman, and he feels that that makes him less well, of a Batman. But I don't, yeah. I don't know. That's just me speculating in my mind. So, <laughs> I think, I, I think it's two reasons. One, I think you can be, you can come from a place of optimism, but have oh, self-doubt, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that's very relatable. Yeah. Um, but I also think from a purely logistics standpoint, 
I think what you're talking about is actually more an indictment of um, creative choices, the writers that are writing those those issues. Not to mm-hmm. say anything negative about that interpretation, but it's not my cup of tea. Here, here's mm-hmm. what I mean. Everything you're describing right there is predicated on Dick's relationship with Bruce Wayne, Nightwing's relationship with Batman. Yeah. Trying to get out from under a shadow of <clears throat> Batman, right? Yeah. One of the one of the things that I was really trying to do in the book, especially by moving Dick to Chicago and building out this this cast of characters in the city where masks were illegal and something had happened in the past with a prior generation of of heroes and Tony Zuko, the man that killed Dick's parents, was still alive. I was trying to build out a world that was specific to Nightwing that mm-hmm. did not put him in a position where you were defining him based on his relationship with Batman. One of the problems is when you define a character by the relationship with another character, their ceiling becomes quite low because the only thing emotionally interesting that you can do with them is based on the ebb and flow of the relationship with, in this case, their mentor. And that's very Mm -hmm. limiting, right? Um, That Dixon McDaniel run, as much as I love it, those first 20 issues are spectacular. But at that point, uh, Dick and Bruce end up on better terms. And then the emotional core of the book kind of fizzles a little bit. It fizzles. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something I was very aware of as I was, as I was writing him, but it is also the easiest thing um, to revert back to creatively when you're trying to figure out, Hey, why does this character work? Well, what do most people know about the character used to be Robin? Oh, okay. Well, that's what we'll lean into. That's the core of the character. It's like, no, that's, that's not the core of the character. That is a, side effect of the situation the character was raised in but the Mm -hmm. core of the character is he catches people when they fall yeah like that to me is the core of the character you know yeah but anyway that's just that's just my my opinion (laughs) no you're cool and stuff i think it's because i also read gates of gotham again i reread it recently oh yeah so like before, because I wanted to kind of just read up and stuff. Also, I really love it because of the architecture stuff. Yeah. I like old school architecture and just old world. We had um, we had uh, Michael Katz and he talked about the glory days of department stores. And that's how he got into marketing for like Sega and everything. Oh, wow. yeah. So like, um, so yeah, no, I just like old world aesthetics and I love architecture, how it can be built so long ago and still stand up against modern and it does have romanticism to it. Um, so, like, I agree with you. So, anyways, I read that, and I know just there were some asides where he was like, you know, I'll never be, or, you know, I won't be that Batman. So, I think, yeah, I think at that point, it kind of was kind of, like, still trying to get, because it was based on that relationship. Well, still. yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I, that book in particular, I did build his arc around the relationship with Bruce, because... Mm-hmm. And sometimes that happens as a result of um, kind of uh, different story elements that are at play. So we knew when they when they called me to do Gates of Gotham, the editor was Mike Martz was like, hey, do you like how would you feel about, you know, writing this miniseries? Um, It'll be with Scott. You know, he'll be there as a safety net for you. But it's your show. And it's a it's a mystery that is so big from, you know, prior generations of Gotham's history that it requires the entire Bat family to come together um, to solve mm-hmm. it. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I was like, so what, so what is it? And he's like, well, that's why I'm calling you. <laughs> and he goes, and we're, so, we're soliciting the book in two days. That's like, holy oh, wow. shit. Yeah, so whoa. <laughs> it, it became like quickly figuring out like, okay, what could this look like? And narrowing rather than, trying to figure out a story across multiple generations of Gotham and the series was supposed to be six issues as well. They cut an issue, which is why some of the plotting gets a little wonky around mm-hmm. issue three, four. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, Oh, uh, this issue. So, so let's narrow in on one era. And then it was about building the modern city after the, um, what was that? I think it was the destroyer arc in the early nineties that like reworked, Goth, the Gotham skyline to look like the Anton first designs from the Burton film. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, I, I reread that and then was kind of navigating around that material to build out my own version here. And it became the story of the kind of disrespected lost family 
that has this um, history with the actual building of the city. And to me, that was an opportunity to parallel these two, two brothers with Dick Grayson feeling like they'll never actually belong to Gotham. And that was actually, now that I remember it, that was the, the crux of, of Snyder's first arc of detective comics where Dick was Batman was feeling like he doesn't really belong in Gotham, even though he's lived there a long time throughout his life, he doesn't really belong there. And I really gravitated towards that. And so the idea that like, well, you'll never really belong in Gotham unless your blood is from Gotham. Um, it was very easy. It's a very short leap. It's not even a leap. It's more like a skip to get to, well, if I were from Gotham, i.e. Bruce, I would have solved this by now. Yeah. So it's actually like tying. It ended up becoming like Bruce Bruce as Batman would be able to solve this, whereas I as Batman am not able to solve this. Definitely plays like maybe I won't be as good a Batman as Bruce, but it was coming from a place of his relationship with the city. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, definitely. All right, so I know we're coming up about an hour here. I only had a couple more questions for you. I'm not sure. Uh, um, the, so I reading Nightwing, the new order, I kept asking myself, I was just reading it like, how did you come up with that premise? Like the idea was really fascinating that you had this moral quandary or this, this moral gymnastics you have to play in your head that Nightwing had to play to use this weapon to rid the world of superheroes. And I was just kind of, right. what, what was, what influenced you to that story arc or what, how did you come around to that? Cause I just, I thought it was a really interesting uh, dynamic and just like this moral and then to find out later spoil or you know his son has superpowers and it was just like right. it was just like reading and I was like wow there's like how do you come up with this stuff you know so I'm kind of curious with well, the new order how did you get around to that um it started from it started initially from a lunch I had with Dan DiDio where Dan kind of threw out on the table the idea that like they were open to doing um he was open to doing some uh some elseworlds stories though they wouldn't it was it was it wasn't certain whether they were were going to be called elseworlds or not um ultimately they decided not to call them elseworlds which i don't know still a little weird to me because it's like that's a that's a brand that that's a name that has like brand value mm-hmm. brand recognition yeah um but regardless like telling he basically said to me, he's like, I want the next kind of Superman red sun. And this was in a conversation with a couple other different possibilities of, of things that maybe I could do. And, but that was the one that I kept gravitating towards. And I was talking to my, who became my editor, Alex Antone about it. And cause Alex was involved with this project. Alex is one of my very good friends as well. And I was like, you know, would it be too low hanging fruit for me to try to do like a Dark Knight Return story for Nightwing? And he goes, no. I, he's like, I think that could actually work really well. He's like, it needs something mm-hmm. extra though. And so I was thinking about it and thinking about it. And I just really liked this idea of um, the superpowers angle and, and superpowers as a kind of, in some ways, allegory for, you know, um, the proliferation of guns in our country and gun control and things like that. And I, if I had my way, I would get rid of all of the guns. Uh, that's not realistic, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, but, uh, that's just my, you know, that's, that's my opinion. I don't, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people feel, feel that way too. (laughs) Well, we'll see what your comments section looks like. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) But, um, but anyway, that's just my opinion and I respect other people's opinions Mm -hmm. on it, but Mm -hmm. that's my opinion. And, and, um, you know, obviously it's way more nuanced, nuanced than that productive statement. but looking at superpowers kind of through that lens became interesting to me and what the proliferation of superpowers might look like and then turning it into a Nightwing story in that Dick Grayson is the heart and soul of the DC universe. And yet he is the one who took action to neutralize all of the superpowers in said universe. Became a really interesting touchstone for me, or mm-hmm. touch point. And ultimately, what the book is, ult- is really about is how even really good people can come to believe in really terrible things. And looking at an issue like superpowers 
that becomes a lot more nuanced and, and there are a lot more subtle kind of shades of gray there was, um, was a really um, big creative challenge for me, but something I was excited by. And um, so I, yeah, just, I built the story out from there. Um, it just kind of, I just, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, it's even now it sounds like you, you're still thinking about it. Like you're still thinking about the decisions that you made with that story and how, well, I wish we like, had, I wish we would have, I wish we would have had one more issue. <laughs> ah, <laughs> okay. It's a little tight. It gets a little yeah. tight towards the end. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm really, really proud of the book. So, and Trevor, you know, Trevor is a, a very good friend of mine and he, his comics career, comics career started on Nightwing and mine really started on Nightwing as well in a different, you know, era, obviously. And so for us to come back and get to tell one kind of last big Nightwing story, I don't know if this will be the last time I ever write Nightwing, but if it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to have been able to come back and, and really tell a story on my terms that from beginning to end I had planned out and, you know, it, 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 everything that happens in it was by choice as opposed to reacting to either an event Mm -hmm. and having to change my plans or reacting to kind of late in the game editorial mandates and having to change, change my plans. Um, which by the way, I'm not, you know, I have no bitterness there or anything like that's, Uh that's the thing about writing in a shared universe, you know, especially work for hire shared universe. Um, but it does sometimes become frustrating. Yeah. I will say, I wish there was, I wanted to see the whole arc between Superman and the black kryptonite. And then spoiler alert, he kills Batman. Like, Oh my God. Like him just like blowing his head off with his laser vision was like, that was like, I want to know more. Like, how did that happen? That's like when I see things like that. So little those little pieces in there just made me like really enjoy that that story arc and how you juggled all these uh, characters as well. Like how they had you know you brought them in and him and Starfire and, and all that stuff. But yeah, I I enjoyed it. I just I, I kept thinking in my head like how did he come up with this stuff? Like what was he thinking? It was just a, a really interesting take. So um, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, you know that that question of like how do you come up with or where does it come. From? I, you know, it's always a really tough one to answer because so much of it is, it's organic. Yeah. You're, you're, you're kind of developing things and you're asking yourself questions and, and sometimes it can, sometimes it can be, inf- it can be influenced in like really weird, random ways, like depending on like what you're reading or watching at the time or what's going on in the world or kind of what's in the zeitgeist. And so much of what I think we do as writers um, especially on, you know, other brands, I, I like to say I, I'm kind of like, I kind of get hired to be, um, almost to be like a lens or a filter, you know, and like take a lot of disparate kind of influences and, and desires of the people who own the characters. And, and ultimately I kind of filter everything down into like, well, here's a thing I understand and here's how I would do it and oh, try to give them what they think they want um, and, and still tell a story that is really resonant for me. And so it is hard sometimes to boil it down to like, well, where did that idea come from? You know, like Power Rangers, the Lord Draken character, I can, I can really, I can speak to probably a little more firmly than most of my ideas just because it, it, his, his creation is so specifically tied to the emotional arc that I was trying to put Tommy Oliver through and looking to face his darkest fear and that darkest fear is just manifested as a version of himself that chose to stay evil, you know. Um, yeah. But other ideas are a little bit a little bit more nebulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead, Ruthie. Yeah. Ruth. Oh no, I was going to say I was just um, kind of when you were like, I wish we'd had one more episode like that. I feel like creatives especially like writers or like filmmakers or, you know, I feel like that you do like you get limited sometimes. And it made me think of recently a director said like, if I'd only had 10 more minutes of screen time, like, you know, like just to throw out some more like ideas or just a little more like meat and potatoes for the story. So I can see that that's a thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're always kind of, um, you're always kind of up against it. I mean, 10 more minutes, 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Know. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he might have wanted like an hour more. But he's like, what I could have done with 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, at that point. Sure. So. What was it for? What, what do you remember? Oh, um, it was actually for, um, oh, gosh. Uh, it was actually something, it was Guillermo uh, del Toro. So it was an interview with him, and I don't remember which one it was. Um, but I just love his. Uh, aesthetic and his sure, yeah. creative process. I have a lot of respect for foreign film because I feel they don't see art the way we do as Americans. Sure. I thought you were going to so say it, the Snyder cut. <laughs> really? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, no, like all the cuts they come out with now, which is great, <laughs> uh, you know, for to get that for them. But yeah, no, I just, I feel like that's a thing too and stuff. Or, you know, if I just had a little more um, time and everything. So I guess um, you've, you've, talked about so much and everything and stuff and I know we're we're getting towards the end so I guess I guess the final question I had maybe it's a little selfish of me um but <laughs> for for aspiring writers or creatives do you have any advice that you would like to throw out there um no, no I mean nothing specific other than um you just have to finish stuff like that's kind of the biggest that's the uh mm-hmm that's the biggest thing. I mean, you can always make it better, um, but you can't make something better that doesn't actually exist yet. You know, like you just have oh, yeah. to, you have to get over your own kind of self doubt and your own, um, your own inner critic that is measuring what you're doing up against um, things that you know are really good. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a comparison that you'll always lose if you, if you try to measure yourself against it. And so, I think you just have to kind of, you just have to, re- I, I like to say you, you have to respect the process. You don't have to like the process. You don't have to enjoy the process, but you have to respect it. And the process is that the stuff you're doing, it, it sucks until it doesn't. Like, <laughs> True. <laughs> that's just, that's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so find a group of, of people that you trust creatively around you that you can share stuff with and bounce ideas off of and get feedback from. Um, and, uh, that that would be that would be the be- the biggest advice I have. Yeah, it's just you, you just have to finish stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. Um, all right, so the very 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 last question, and I promise this is the last <laughs> one, is sure. What do you have coming out or that is out that you would like to you know shout out? What can I tell people to brag about? And I had you on our show. Like, hey, Kyle Higgins is doing this. Check this out. You should buy this. Uh, <laughs> well, the only thing that's the only thing that's announced right now is uh, Ultraman for Marvel. Mm-hmm. So that'll be that'll be coming yes. out this summer. Um, I don't think they've said the exact month yet. Um, but uh, but yeah, it should it should be. I think it's this summer. Um, and I'm doing that with Matt Groom and Francesco Mana, and it's it's really cool. It's it's an opportunity again. Like I was saying before, it's an opportunity to come onto a very beloved brand, and um, in a lot of well. For starters, reintroduce that character and that brand to, um, in certain ways, the West. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it's not reintroducing. It's actually introducing to a lot of people. Yeah. This character that is very, very well known, kind of worldwide, kind of everywhere but the, the West, everywhere but the United States. There were, like, there were some copyright issues, some lawsuits for like 30 years that kept him... Wow. Out of the out of the U.S. So those have all been resolved, and so now Matt and I, uh, along with Francesco and 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 Tom Brevoort and Alana Smith and and uh, C.B. Sabolsky and and Marvel are able to come in and, and build out kind of a new uh, interpretation, uh, you know, a little bit of a remix uh, for Shin Hayata and and uh, Ultraman. And I think it's, I mean, look, we don't have, I, well, I don't know. I was going to say we don't have the same kind of nostalgia factor that we do, that we did on Power Rangers, as far as like people who were a fan of the show as a kid and, and decided to take a shot on the comic book. Um, but we do have, there, there actually, there is a, a, a very sizable um, fan base for Ultraman. Um, it's huge in Japan. And, so I know that much. Yeah, it's like ultra yeah. big there. <laughs> Black. Yeah, <laughs> unintended, I so, guess. <laughs> so we'll 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 see how that actually um, translates 
from a kind of sales number standpoint yeah. and an interest level. But I will say the reaction to the announcement at C2E2 was was pretty big. Um, and it, it surprised me uh, in a positive way. And so, yeah, I mean, if you liked what I did on Power Rangers, I think you will really, really like what we're doing on Ultraman. Awesome. Yes. I'm definitely going to check it out and well, yeah. retweet, the, retweet the crap out of it whenever you <laughs> put it out. So, um, Sounds so, good. So that being said, uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. It's been, I mean, awesome getting your, your viewpoints and stuff and your creative process. And it just, uh, I'm super yes. gracious. We are super gracious to have you on. Yes. Thank you again. So, thank um, you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And <laughs> we look forward to all of your hopefully many, many more works to come, including Ultraman. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a good one. You too. You too. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Nerds Adulting, a podcast where grown-up nerds discuss being an adult and how nerd culture influenced us and still is. On this podcast, I invite special guests to discuss certain topics that include parenting, violent video games, television, movies, streamers, game developing, and anything else considered part of nerd culture. I've been a nerd my entire life, and even as an adult, I'm still vested in nerd culture, whether it be TV, movies, video games, or technology. I'm also a parent who unsurprisingly rubbed off on my children who are now developing their own nerdy interests as well. I love the aspects of nerd culture and how it intertwines with us now as adults. How do we juggle our hobbies along with being a husband or wife, our jobs, being a parent? This is what this podcast is about, how we still are nerds even as adults. You know, nerd culture is mainstream now. So when you use the word nerd derogatorily, it means you're the one that's out of the zeitgeist.